Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed thankful for Christ who is our righteousness. We're thankful that we can come to rejoice in these truths here together this morning. And now as we come to your word together this morning, Lord, we pray that by your spirit you might help us to understand that we might be encouraged and edified for your name and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Miserable Christians. Miserable Christians. Probably not two words that you would often think of together. Miserable Christians. Maybe two words that you've never even heard put together. Miserable Christians. But I can guarantee you that you at one time or another have been or possibly are or even will be a miserable Christian. Miserable Christians. What am I talking about when I mention miserable Christians? Well, I'm talking about Christians who are suffering. Christians who are facing trials and troubles everywhere at every turn. Suffering. Overwhelmed by sorrow and pain and grief and agony. They're Christians, yes, but they're miserable. Miserable Christians. I first heard this put together miserable Christians when I was reading an article that was posing the question, what can miserable Christians sing? And we gather together and we sing happy songs, right? The question was, what can miserable Christians sing? What about those who are suffering? What about those who are filled with sorrow and pain? Well, it's a question I think I'd like to consider even yet this morning or questions similar to it. What can miserable Christians sing? What can miserable Christians pray? How can they pray? How can they sing? How can they deal with? How can they move through the suffering in their life? And whenever we ask questions like that, how can Christians deal with any particular type of emotion or circumstance in their life? I think the Psalms are a wonderful place to turn and find encouragement for the Christian. Calvin even says of the Psalms that they are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Because in the Psalms you'll find that whatever circumstance, whatever situation or motion even you're experiencing in life, you'll find it dealt with in the Psalms. All these griefs, sorrows, fears, joys, gladness. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 42. And I'll invite you to turn there with me now to Psalm 42 as we considerable, consider miserable Christians. In this psalm, we find an individual lament. The psalmist is crying out to God. They're deeply grieved and depressed. They're miserable. They've been exiled, taken away from their home, kept from their home, kept from even more, the presence of God in the temple worship that they so, so longingly want to be back and be a part of. And what's more, while they're being kept in exile and away from their home and from the temple and from the worship of God with His people, they're also being mocked and persecuted. This psalmist in Psalm 42 is indeed in misery. Probably someone we can relate to at different times in our life and we think, what, what are we to do in these times? What are we to pray? How can we pray? How can we sing? And so what I'd like to consider in this psalm this morning is, as miserable Christians, 
what are eight responses to our the way we deal with our suffering eight responses of a miserable christian as they suffer it's god's kindness to us that he provides the book of psalms and psalms like this one that we can be encouraged to know how it is that we might respond in our suffering now as we go through eight of these responses of a miserable christian some of them will overlap there'll be some kind of go together some that um, are shorter, longer, but I think there are eight of these as we consider Psalm 42 and the response of a miserable Christian to the suffering and trials and troubles in their life. Let's begin with our first response of a miserable Christian, and that is the miserable Christian longs for God. The miserable Christian longs for God. Look with me at Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The imagery of the psalmist begins with here is that of a deer that is longing for and in desperate search of flowing streams of water. The situation the psalmist is in is, is a bleak situation, a period of long suffering. It's not a short trial, but a long absence from his home, from the temple. And he says that with my soul, my, my entire being, everything about me, and the, the deepest parts of who I am, I long for God. I'm parched as though I'm in the wilderness, being kept from God. I'm parched as though I'm in the desert and I, I thirst and I thirst for God. Reminds me of Psalm 63 where the psalmist says in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see the unquenchable thirst of the psalmist can only be satisfied here. He says by God. Nothing else will satisfy. This thirst in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this wilderness, this longing I have is for God and God alone. You see a kind of threefold escalation of this longing in these verses when he says that my soul thirsts for God, verse 2. And then he says, for the living God. And what's more, when shall I come and appear before God? So he kind of escalates this longing for God it's for the living God, he says, because God is a living God, not like these gods that these others around me are worshiping. Think of Psalm 115, where it talks about these idols that are made with man's hands who can't see or hear or smell or touch anything. No, God is alive. He's living. He's a living God and no doubt even drawing connection with God, who is the fountain of living water as we hear in Jeremiah and the fountain of life elsewhere in the Psalms. And so when the psalmist is met with suffering that is great and deep, what does he long for? He longs for God. And then he continues in that escalation, verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? The phrase really has the meaning of when shall I see his face? When shall I be in his presence? When will I see him and be seen by him? You think of in the Old Testament, the temple being that place 
or the unique presence of God with his people and where they would gather and they would seek the face of God as they gathered to worship him. In Psalm 27, verses 4 and 8 It says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. So the psalmist here longing to be in the presence of God, longing to seek after him, is being kept from him. And so in this trial, there's certainly no doubt any number of things he could have requested or longed for in this trial. But what is the one thing that will quench his thirst? What is the one thing he longs for? It's for God. When we respond to suffering in our life, what is it we long for? And what is it we find ourselves praying for and asking for? It's not wrong, undoubtedly, to ask for things that we need and things that we want. But is the default longing of our heart to long for God? Sometimes we long for things, for things that we think might fix our situation or fix our troubles or our suffering. Instead, we long for God. We know that he alone is the one who can give us strength. He alone is the one who can meet our ultimate need, our ultimate need for salvation and hope, as we'll see later in the psalm. And so as we long for him, we're filled with this hope. Spurgeon says of this, when it's natural for us to long for God as an animal to thirst, it is well with our souls, however painful our feelings. So an encouragement to us as Christians, as we suffer, as we go through life and are met with various trials and troubles and grief, what is it we long for? Do we default long for God in Christ or do we long for things? Second response of a miserable Christian in response to our suffering is the miserable Christian cries out to God. So first, the miserable Christian longs for God. Then second, the miserable Christian cries out to God. And we see this all throughout Psalm 42. In verse 1, we see it as a deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God. It seems a simple thing to point out, but it's important for us to notice that this is directed to God, addressing God. We go to verse 4. We see these things I remember as I pour out my soul. The psalmist is pouring out his soul. He's crying out to God. He's lamenting. It's a psalm of lament. He cries and pours out his soul. Then in verse 8, it says it's a prayer to the God of my life. And in verse 9, I say to God, my rock. You take notice in all of these that the psalmist is addressing God. This prayer, this song is to God. He's crying out. That's what it means to lament. It means to pour out your heart and your soul before God. To explain, to tell him of your grief, to tell him of your suffering, to tell him of your troubles and your sorrow. To lament before him. You know, we're not very good at lamenting. It's difficult for us sometimes. In fact, sometimes when we talk about lament, we say that the psalmists are complaining to God. 
Now, there's complaining and there's complaining. This is not a complaint like, oh, man, come on. You know, it's not that kind of complaint. It's a pouring out your heart earnestly, honestly telling God of your troubles. Explaining and telling him of what you were experiencing and lamenting before him. It's a cry out to him. In that, we acknowledge that we know that God ultimately is the one who is in control of these things. Ultimately, it is God who is our hope. Ultimately, it is God who can help us. Ultimately, it is God who we long for in the midst of our suffering. In Psalm 62, verse 8, it says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. The encouragement to, as a Christian, even as you're suffering, to pour out your heart before him because he is a refuge for us at all times. Sometimes we're quick to praise God, quick to sing to him, quick to pray and turn to him when things are good and right. But are we quick to not only long for him, but pray and seek him even when things are difficult, when we suffer? We see even in the New Testament, encouragement to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5. I think of the parables in Luke 18, when Jesus is sharing with his disciples, it says in Luke 18, 1, and he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. We don't lose heart, but we pray without ceasing. We look to God even in our trials. We pour out our heart before him, honestly, lamenting, crying out to him. And as those who are trusting in Christ alone as our Savior, we have access to boldly approach his throne with confidence through Christ at all times. And so in our lowest moments, where do we turn? To whom do we look? Do we turn to ourselves? Do we turn to others? Do we turn to things, temporal things, material things? Or do we turn to God in Christ and cry out to Him? You know, we can even be encouraged even as we begin to pray. It may not see immediate change come in our life, but even the fact that we are praying, even that we are addressing God, looking to Him, means that you're no longer at your lowest point because you've shifted, you've turned your focus and your gaze upon him. Let's keep moving through these responses of a miserable Christian and their suffering. So a miserable Christian longs for God. They cry out to God. And then third, the miserable Christian remembers. The miserable Christian remembers. Let's look back at Psalm 42. We'll begin in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. We see here more of this longing of the psalmist in these verses, this suffering that he is going through. In fact, the psalmist is suffering to the extent that he says, my tears have been my food day and night. This is constant, ongoing suffering that he faces. 
And we see the persecution that he faces as well, the mocking jeers of his enemies while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Where is he? No doubt the absence of God seems to be the case for his enemies and perhaps the psalmist is even beginning to believe his enemies. Where is God? It seems as though he's absent as I'm suffering here. It's as though then the psalmist has nothing left except his memory. You see in verse 4, these things I remember. In his suffering, he has nothing left but his memory. And then he recounts the memories of how he used to participate and lead in the temple worship. We see this psalm is written, it says, of the sons of Korah, those who were leading the temple worship. And how he used to be a part of that, probably here even referring to the gatherings, the festival gatherings at maybe Passover, the first fruits, or the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he remembers that. He remembers when he used to participate, when he used to be with the people of God in the presence of God, worshiping him, when he wasn't suffering. Now, some might say, and some do say about this even, that it's to the negative effect that the psalmist remembers these things, that it's a, oh man, I remember the good old days. This is a total bummer right now. And we experience that, right? It's true. We remember those good old days. We remember when things were seemingly right in our life, when we were experiencing the blessings of God, when his providence was providing for us. But I think there's also... A positive aspect to this remembering that's an encouragement even to us in our suffering. The psalmist here remembers when he was with the people, not being held from his home, not being withheld from the temple. When things were good, when he was participating with glad shouts and songs of praise leading in the procession of the house of God. When God was good and present and things were right and he was being blessed by God. And when he remembers that in his present moments of affliction and suffering, it can help him remember that God indeed is good. I've experienced, I've tasted of the goodness of God. And while my circumstances have changed, I know that there is something, someone who doesn't change, a constant, and that is God. So while my circumstance is not what it used to be, and I remember what that was, I'm in this suffering now, I can remember and be encouraged that the God who was blessing me then, and I was seemingly all was well in my life, even in the midst of this suffering, I can be encouraged that God is the same yesterday, today, and will be. Nothing changes about God. So while our circumstance may change, God remains the same. He is still good. He is still faithful. He is still gracious and kind and merciful. And he remembers these things. Look further down in the psalm where we see see the psalmist remembering some of these things specifically about God in this moment of suffering. Verse 6, the psalmist says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. So here's more of this remembering, and he's remembering specifically God. Then jump to verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He remembers who God is. He remembers that God is the God of his life. 
He remembers God who commands his steadfast love. Even notice, he changes in verse 8 the name he uses for God. He's been using the name God and then he shifts to the Lord in verse 8. This is the covenant name of God, the personal name of God that they use when they're referring to God who had been making promises to his people and they knew him to be true and faithful to his promises because he's a God who never lies, who never changes. And so here, as he's remembering the past joys and blessings in this present affliction, he's remembering that God himself has made promises to his people and he's remembering and knowing that God will be faithful to his promises. He's remembering these truths about God and who he is, that he has set his love upon his people and he will be faithful to pour out his promises on his people. And so even in his suffering, he can find joy and gladness and hope in who God is and the promises he's made to him. So that remembrance is a good thing for us. We can find encouragement even in our suffering as we remember God and who he is and the promises he's made to us. We think there's things we can remember as we encounter suffering and troubles and trials. Maybe you struggle to find joyous, good things to remember. But I think there are some helpful things, even as we think of Scripture, that we can remember that can encourage our hearts, even amidst the suffering. Maybe we can put it just in the term of a simple word. Remember the garden. And that might help as you think through your suffering. Remember the garden. Think of the Garden of Eden, where Adam was as our representative. Placed in the garden commanded to obey God and his commands that he'd given him, his good and right and holy commands. Told that if he obeyed and did as he was commanded, there would be blessings of life and rewards. But if he failed, there would be punishment of death, separation from God. We see that Adam in the garden as our representative was tempted and he failed And sin enters into the world. And as we remember that, it can even help us in our suffering to remember that we have categories. We understand our suffering because we understand that we live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. And not all things are as they should be. And so as we recall the garden, we remember why it is that we encounter suffering in this life. But remembering the garden doesn't stop there. We can remember another garden, but the Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ, our Savior, the suffering Savior, suffered for us. As we suffer in this life, we can remember the garden and Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came to obey as our representative. As we all have fallen in Adam Christ comes to obey perfectly without sin, tempted, but succeeds, doesn't fail. Christ, the perfect, sinless sacrifice for us, who would suffer through his life and his ultimate death on the cross, atoning for sins of those who would believe, taking our place, and then rising again, defeating death and sin, and that blessing, that reward of life, 
is ours by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something to remember as we suffer. Remember the garden. Remember where this suffering comes from, sin, no doubt. But remember our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has overcome the world. Jesus even promised that we would have trouble in this life, but he says, but I have overcome the world. And so as we are placing faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know even in our suffering that we have hope because of Christ. So no matter what the circumstances we face, we must remember. Remember God who never changes, even though our circumstances do. And remember Christ our Savior. Certainly our life is filled with ups and downs, peaks of mountains, valleys. We can remember. We can remember how he's led us to those high peaks, how he's led us through those deep, dark moments. But we can remember the promises that he has for us and how they are sure in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's continue with these eight responses of a miserable Christian in light of their suffering. They long for God. They cry out to God. A miserable Christian remembers. And then fourth, the miserable Christian talks to themselves. Miserable Christians talk to themselves. This might be my favorite. It's odd, no doubt, but be sure that when you go home and you're talking to yourself, you can say, it's in the Bible. This is okay. Miserable Christian talks to themselves. Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see, after remembering the goodness of God and these former days of worshiping in the temple, after remembering all these things, you begin to see that this remembrance is actually a good thing because it begins to shift the mind of the psalmist, right? Begins in the deep, dark depths where he's longing for God and God alone. The tears have been his food all day, and I remember the good, but I'm in this present affliction. But now there's a shift to where he now is beginning to see the good, the hope that is before him. And so, in the middle of this song, in the middle of this prayer... The psalmist talks to himself. And he says, hey, wait a minute, time out. Why are you cast down? He's asking himself these questions. Why are you cast down? Why are you depressed? Why are you saddened? Why are you sorrowful? Why are you in agony? Why? He says, and why are you in turmoil? Within me, this turmoil is to be disquieted, to be troubled, to almost be in an uproar, to be disheveled. Why are you like this? Why is this happening? He's not content to let his emotions and his feelings and what he's experiencing win the day. It's not as though those things are wrong. God gives us these emotions, right? God gives us these responses to what we're experiencing in life. But when we begin to let them win the day and drive how we move forward is when we can get ourselves into trouble. And so he begins to talk to himself. 
I wonder, do you ever talk to yourself? Do you ever remind yourself or say, hey, whoa, time out? Because you see, and we'll see in the next one, what he is going to share is with himself is the truth of who God is. He's going to remind himself and tell himself what God has done, who God is. And we must do the same. When we're suffering, when we're in trials, we have to talk to ourselves and say, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I think sometimes the trouble can be that it's not only that we don't talk to ourselves, but we spend too much time listening to ourselves. Right? In the midst of a trial or suffering, we can think, man, this is the pits, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. If I only had that, or if I could get out of it. And we start listening to ourselves, right? Instead, we need to talk to ourselves. There's a difference there. We begin to tell ourselves what's true and what's right. And what's true and what's right is God and his word. We need to tell ourselves these things. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about these things and he says, you know, I think most of our unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves too often and we don't do enough talking to ourselves. So what is it the psalmist tells himself what is it that he this truth that he reminds himself of and that's what moves us to our eighth response of the miserable christian and that is the miserable christian hopes in god you see that this miserable christian as he's talking to himself tells himself to hope in god verse five again why are you cast down O my soul and why are you in turmoil within me hope in god for i shall again praise him my salvation and my God. He turns his gaze to God and hopes in him. Now this hope is not a maybe, maybe not. It'll work out. It's not a maybe, maybe not wishful thinking type of hope. Hope is this sure confidence. It's a confidence. It's a knowing that this is true and right and good, and it will come to pass a hope because God is faithful and he's going to accomplish what he has promised to do. And we see here that ultimately what brings remedy or helps the psalmist in this spiritual depression, the thing that really brings him out of his misery is understanding his situation in the light of the truth of who God is. And his promises. And you see this time and time again. I mentioned earlier that we're not very good at lament. I would encourage you read the Psalms. And that's why it's so important that we do this during scripture reading together as a church. As we hear these Psalms, as we hear even these Psalms of lament, crying out to God and finding that our only hope is in him and finding that what really seems to help in these times of suffering and trial is to recall and be reminded time and time again of the truth of who God is and the hope we have found in him alone and his promises. So often it's, I feel this way or my emotions as I'm experiencing and my flesh wants these things. But as we begin to filter that through the truth of God, not the things of this world, 
It encourages our hearts. It helps us in those trials. It doesn't mean that it's going to fix the trial or take away the suffering or get you out of it quickly. Your trial may last a lifetime. But here, look at the psalmist says when he's encouraging his own heart, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He says, I will, I will do this again. Doesn't mean it's today, doesn't mean it's tomorrow. It might be not until eternity. When every wrong is made right. We can have confidence in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, that ultimate, lasting Genuine hope is found in God and His, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're reminded of this in the New Testament as the Apostle Paul, even in Ephesians 2, I think, of when we're told that we're born as God's enemies without hope, it says in Ephesians 2. No hope but God. There is hope in Christ. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. In Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior, in whom we have salvation and redemption and forgiveness and hope. And so in the midst of our suffering, we say, why are you downcast? Hope in God. Think of Christ, our Savior, because we know because of the promises that have found their yes and amen in Christ and what he has done for us, we can hope in him. We can have joy. We can have peace here and now in the suffering because of Christ and what he has done for us. I'm reminded of Romans 5 where it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, all this grace in which we stand in this life, even though we may face suffering and trial. And it goes on and it says, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice because we have found hope in Christ our Savior and we rejoice because of the glory of God. We know that one day we will see Him and we will be made like Him in glory when we are glorified. And He says, not only that, in Romans 5, continuing on, verse 3, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, because of the hope that is ours in Christ, we can rejoice in our sufferings. And it says, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. These sufferings, these trials can produce hope in us. A hope that is sure because it is not hope and hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's hope that is in Christ Jesus. Hebrews six nineteen. I love what it says about this hope. That it is sure and steadfast. It is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner peace behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the sure and steady anchor for our souls in the midst of suffering. He's the anchor of hope for the souls of men. Do we talk to ourselves? Do we tell ourselves the truth, the hope that we have in Christ? Why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He knows his salvation is ultimately with God and his hope is with him. And so he talks to himself and he hopes in God. And we have a 
Three more of these eight responses of the miserable Christian. They long for God. They cry out to God. They remember. They talk to themselves. They hope in God. And then sixth, the miserable Christian knows God is sovereign. We'll move quickly through this as last week, Pastor Pat talked about things we can expect in our life this year. And he talked about God's sovereignty. Well, we see that here even in Psalm 42 the miserable Christian knows that God is sovereign and encourages his heart even in the midst of suffering with God's sovereignty. Look at verses 6 and following. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I think it's fascinating. And you see this throughout the Psalms. When the psalmist encourages his heart and the hope of God. And tells himself, why are you downcast? The next verse Now he's free from suffering, right? Wrong. Again, he says, my soul, my my soul is cast down. The suffering, he's not free from it right here and right now. And again, it's more of the remembering. And he's remembering from the land and where he is, the land of Jordan, cast off far from his home and far from the temple. And then he says in verse 7, recounting the depth of this suffering, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This language and imagery of, of water that is taking over him is always drowning in his suffering and in his sorrow. The ocean waves are crashing all around him. The chaos, the turmoil all around him. It's reminiscent of Jonah. And he's praying to God, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. That's what the psalmist is experiencing here. But notice that the psalmist is, yes, lamenting, and the, the suffering is continuing, but he's doing this lamenting and crying out to God while he understands and knows and acknowledges God's sovereignty in his suffering. In verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. He sees God's sovereignty over everything, even over his suffering. It's great comfort to us to know that God is in control of all things that we face in this life, and that can give us rest. It encourages us to trust in him in the midst of suffering. Know that everything is happening according to his plan. That doesn't mean we just sit back and say, all right, we'll see what happens. No, God gives us minds, wisdom to work through these things in life. But ultimately, these things are happening for our good and for his glory. Think of Isaiah 46, where God says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. How about Ephesians 1, verse 11? In him we have obtained an inheritance. This speaking of God's sovereignty and saving us, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is sovereign over all things, and we can trust him in the midst of our suffering. He gives us confidence. So when things seem 
out of control, when it seems there's chaos, trial, suffering at every turn, you find yourself resting in the sovereignty of God. Find hope in Him. Rest in Him and His promises, knowing that He is in control. A seventh response of the miserable Christian is that the miserable Christian asks questions. Move quickly through this one. The miserable Christian asks questions. Look at verses 9 and 10, Psalm 42. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You see, continued that trust in God's sovereignty and confidence in him at the beginning when he says, I say to God, my rock. So he has confidence of God, but even in that confidence, notice what his prayer contains. He's asking questions of God. I don't understand why. Why have you forgotten me? It appears as though, even though I know I have hope in you and I have confidence in your sovereignty, God, it it doesn't seem right what's happening. And so I'm asking God, why? Possible even that the questions again of his enemies are starting to push him in that direction. Like, where is your God? You should be asking the same. And so he's asking God, this doesn't seem right. Where are you in this suffering? Why do I go on mourning? How long will this last? How long, O oh Lord, will I continue? But do notice that these questions, while they're honest and heartfelt prayer to God, are born out of that faith, born out of that trust in the sovereign God who is his rock. And so when we lament, when we pray, when we cry out to God, yes, we ask questions, but it's out of trust in God, knowing that ultimately his promises will come to pass because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to our eighth and final response of a miserable Christian, and that is that the miserable Christian refuses to let fear overcome faith. The miserable Christian refuses to let fear overcome faith. You see, again, at the end of this psalm, the refrain that we heard in verse 5, and since talking with himself in verse 5, he's continued to recount the suffering. He's continued to lament and pray and ask questions because the suffering is not ended. And he's still being bombarded by his enemies around him and pushed Where is your God? But he refuses, we see in verse 11, to let his fear or the suffering overcome his faith. And he is going to trust in God alone. He knows that this is not the end. He will again praise God. He says in verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And by God's grace, this can be a response of ours in our suffering. For those who are in Christ, we can know as we face suffering in our life, we can be encouraged to remind ourselves, why are you downcast? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, 
While in the midst of a present suffering, we can know that God is good and true and faithful to his promises so we can trust him. Even though things right now don't seem right, we can know that one day they will be. Hope in God, for we will again praise him. Hope in God, his promises will come to pass. We can look forward to that day when all eternity we will bow down before him and worship him for his goodness, for his faithfulness. And the Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished redemption for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are indeed grateful for the Psalms that we can see how we can respond in all circumstances in our life. We can respond by lamenting and crying out before you, O God. We can remember your goodness and faithfulness and how you have been faithful to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us through life of suffering for us that led him to the cross where he would atone for our sins. We can rejoice in an empty tomb knowing that he has defeated Death, he's defeated sin, and we can rejoice in the hope that is ours because Christ is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Lord, help us to be those who rest in these precious promises, these precious truths, these realities, so that as we face everything we go through in life, we can do so resting and trusting in Christ our Savior, knowing that He is our hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.